Welcome to the best of Sherwood Park. Today is an exciting day. I've been waiting for this day for a very, very long time because we're diving in to OBGYN with Dr. Dohaniak. Did I say that right? Dohaniak, yeah. Yeah, lovely. Um, okay, so we're going to start first by thanking you to um, for your time because I can only appreciate how busy you are because you're not just a doctor, you're a mom, you're a wife, you've got you've got lots of things that you're managing. So thank you for your time. Yeah, happy to be here. Um, okay, I wanted to understand, first of all, um, I have a secret passion of always wanting to be a doctor. So I'm always intrigued. How did you get here? What inspired you? Um, honestly, probably a love of science, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Um, so I got my undergrad degree and then, as you know, sometimes it's difficult to know what to do with an undergrad degree. So I kind of looked back and thought, what was the coolest parts about my undergrad degree? And it was in physiology. And then I loved, I loved the introductions of all my papers, the application of why a certain gene or a certain something was really important. So that's kind of how I figured out that medicine was for me. So and then, so you did, I mean, obviously you go through um, your, your general practice and then go on to specialize as an OB. Yeah. So, well, sort of. Um, so I did 13 years of post-secondary education. So I did a, a physiology degree first, and then I did uh, four years of med school and then five years of residency after that. So. And that's, uh, it, when is it, when was it that you decided OB was just for you, where you wanted to be? when I was a student, med student. So it was the one rotation that I did not mind getting woken up at four o'clock in the morning for. So yeah. it's always the true test, right? Is if you can love doing your job at four o'clock in the morning, then it's probably the job for you. Amen to that. Absolutely. I love that. Okay. So although, I mean, would you, your primary daily practice is um, prenatal or like pregnancy care? Is that what you do primary? Uh, I, my practice is probably 70% obstetrics and 30% gynecology. So okay. I have a private practice, meaning that I see patients in my clinic uh, and then those patients obviously deliver somewhere. So I deliver out of the Grey Nuns Hospital um, here in Edmonton and uh, yeah, and I'm also a gynecologist. So I operate and um, do gynecology surgery. So things like hysterectomies or looks on the inside of the uterus or, you know, postmenopausal bleed patients, I'll see them too. So about 30% of the time I devote to that too. Okay. Very interesting. Now in, uh, in medicine, this is just from curiosity perspective. We, we don't, we don't have anybody that does strictly mature gynecology, do we, or do you guys? Uh, it? Yeah, it's, Every gynecologist, every obstetrician gynecologist is going to be a little bit different in how they structure their practice. Um, I don't specifically do menopause. Um, I will, uh, I mean, all of us as obstetrician gynecologists have a basic training in menopause, um, but there are certain individuals that will work in a menopause uh, clinic specifically. So we have a menopause clinic at the Grey Nuns currently. Uh, it's run by one of the obstetricians, Dr. Sherman's. Uh, and then uh, she has a, a, a quite a number of family docs actually that work with her really closely, um, and they uh, together will you know manage the the menopause clinic. So and they have okay. extra training. They have something called North American Menopause Society or NAMS certification. So they go through extra certification to um, delve deeper into the difficult menopause cases. 
Okay, very interesting. But then would they also do the um, like hysterectomies and some of the like some of the surgeries or does that fall back on to people like you? Yeah, it usually falls back on to people like me. So okay. if you're a gynecologist, then so for example, Dr. Sherman's uh, would have the training to do that, but some of the family docs would not have the training to do hysterectomies. So then they refer on to me. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So, um, we're going to talk about menopause just because it's, um, the topic of choice for the clientele that I have, but I'm, I'm actually going to ask you a couple questions about babies. Cause I love babies. Uh, so, um, when we look at menopause and uh, obviously for us, uh, like as mature as maturing women, it's something that we're going to go through, but yeah. I feel that I, I feel that a lot of, um, there's been a, a, that there's been a lot placed on the menopausal, everything, menopausal mood, belly, um, everything like there, it seems to, it seems to be a catch-all for everything, uh, everything bad in our lives as we're entering this phase. So I, I just really would like to dispel some of those myths and, and, and offer some great news that you can come from, from a scientific perspective that, uh, that, that helps us see the light because I, I just, I just, in my heart, don't feel like it has to be so difficult. Um, and certainly doesn't warrant the, uh, as much credit as it give, as, as as we're giving it to cause such a distress on our body. So let, I mean, let's just start with the basic hormones. Obviously, the hormones change from where we are when we're uh, menstruating to where we go into premenopause. So as the hormones change, you take it over from here and tell me what what's what's work or what's not working and how that affects the bigger picture for us. So the way that I usually describe menopause to my patients uh, is it's kind of actually the life cycle, the human reproductive life cycle is kind of like a car um, when you start it up for the first time. So when you start a car for the first time, you're 11, 12, 13 years of age, uh, the car kind of stutters and starts, and then it finally gets into a rhythm and starts rolling down the road. So that stuttering and starting is um, menarche or when you have your first menstrual cycle, right? We all remember back to when we were 10, 11, 12, 13 years of age. Um, the cycles were crazy. The cycles were all over the place. Our moods were crazy. We were crazy, you know, preteens or teens. Um, and that's kind of the start of the reproductive life cycle. And then you finally get into a rhythm, you know, kind of about 14, 15, 16 years of age where your moods, hopefully for most, for most of us evened out a little bit. And we got a little bit more um, stable in terms of our menstrual cycles. And then menopause is the reverse of that. So menopause in my world is defined as one full year without any menstrual cycles at all. So it's the perimenopause more is what you're talking about, which is the two to 10 years before the actual age of menopause. And in that perimenopausal period, that's when the car sputters, right? Mm -hmm. And it kind of starts to slow down, right? Um, and that's a really good way of thinking about it because the hormones are kind of like the gas, right? And the hormones will be there, not there, there, not there. So I don't infrequently get patients that ask me, can I check my hormone levels? And I say it's useless because hormone levels will be high in one part of the day and low in another part of the day. So measuring hormone levels in and of itself really, you know, doesn't give you any clue. We more go by symptoms to see, you know, your perimenopausal or chances are your perimenopausal. And then menopause, like I said, is defined as one full year without any cycles at all. So, um, 
we all have to remember too, that it's not just estrogen and progesterone that's in the menopausal period. It's all of our metabolism in general, right? So estrogen and progesterone are definitely the female hormones. And that's what causes a lot of these changes, but men go through a certain amount of changes at this point in their life cycle as well. Metabolism slows for them as well. It just slows in a slightly different way. So, you know, people will come in wanting a magic pill, you know, they want to be on hormone replacement therapy because they want to lose weight and they don't want to have all these symptoms. And what I say to people is I wish I had a magic pill. I'd, I'd be in Vegas. You know, I wouldn't be in Edmonton. Um, I love Edmonton, but I wouldn't be here in the winters. Uh, but there's no magic pill, unfortunately, that can solve all of the problems of menopause. So even correcting estrogen and progesterone hormones, you still are going to have a slow and in slow slowing of your metabolism. Um, and all the things that you used to be able to do to lose weight, it doesn't work anymore. Right. So I wish I had a magic pill. I wish I had great answers, but it's just, unfortunately, you know, it's part of life that I think all of us, both males and females or people who identify as male or people who identify as female, you, you have to live with it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, but it, you know, I just think it gets so much damn credit and it drives me crazy because, uh, you know, you'll, because two to 10 years is a long time to be putting things on hold because you're not feeling, you know, you're not feeling yourself or these, these symptoms or keep coming up to ruin a night's sleep. So, um, for you, when you're, when you're looking at helping women with symptoms, are there things like, obviously you just said, talked a little bit about hormone replacement and that not being the necessarily end all be all, but like for, you know, sleep insomnia, insomnia or night sweats that may keep women up because sleeping for me is like the rock star. So if people aren't getting enough sleep, everything's kind of tanks, their executive decision-making, they're, they're getting food prepared, they're getting to the gym, nothing works. So is there something in particular for from that perspective that we could offer um, as a suggestion for sleep? Um, there's no, again, there's no magic pill and there's no magic solution for sleep specifically. The, okay. the thing I'll suggest for sleep, honestly, is a good routine. Mm -hmm. So I have kids uh, and I notice that when my kids are in a routine, life goes that much better, right? Um, and it's when we get out of that routine that any of us as human beings don't tend to function quite as well. So people will stay up later on a weekend because they want to go out and, you know, have drinks with a friend or party with a friend or whatever. And that's what gets you out of that rhythm and actually will disturb your sleep more than anything. So um, pregnant patients, when they come in, I tell them the same thing. I can't give you a pill to help you sleep better. But what I right. can tell you is go to bed at the same time every night, wake up the same time of the every morning even on weekends. Um, so that's probably the number one thing that I can suggest. And then the other thing too, is trying to avoid the triggers right before bed, right? So trying to avoid alcohol right before bed, because uh, alcohol, we think it makes us sleep better, but in actuality, it's probably the opposite. And then caffeine, right? So that would be the other big thing too, is trying to avoid uh, caffeine, you know, after a certain time of day, and everybody has to play with it a little bit. And then, you know, in, in some cases, um, you know, sleeping aids can be helpful as well. Uh, but again, it depends on why the sleep is disrupted. Is the sleep disrupted because, you know, um, you know, there's a whole bunch of other hormonal changes going on. Is the sleep disrupted because you're having hot flushes? So if you're having hot flushes, uh, I usually suggest starting with just the conservative stuff first, dressing in layers, um, you know, having, make sure you have breathable materials on. 
uh, make sure the, you know, the, the temperature is set to a really cool setting, which oftentimes doesn't help our partners. Um, but, uh, you know, keeping the, the temperature nice and low and wearing layers and taking off layers or putting on layers, there's chillow pillows, there's lots of different uh, type of what we call conservative measures that can that can help to make things better. Um, and then, yeah, sometimes people do need things like hormone replacement therapy and, um, and, you know, usually for hormone, um, replacement treatment, we want to start it within a couple years of a patient that stops menstruating, because if we start it too, too far away from that time, then it can be, um, dangerous on the heart and things like that. So. Okay. So there's timelines for that. Very interesting. Um, let's talk, I, I mean, everybody wants to go get their hormones checked. And then if their doc doesn't want to do it, they head out to an outside clinic and the outside, um, clinics are, uh, selling this stuff like, uh, snow to a snowman. So what, I, I mean, I've heard in the past that the compounds that they can make are, they're not, um, they're not necessarily consistent. So you get to the, you get to a compounding agent, uh, you get to a, you know, something that's bioidentical or for your own personal self, but the consistency of those compounds aren't necessarily something that can be controlled when you go outside of, you know, outside of our Western medicine. A am I on the right track with that? Um, I think it, it, the answer is yes. So a lot of the compounds are not regulated uh, mm -hmm. in terms of dosing and in terms of application amounts and things like that. Um, Health Canada is very strict on hormones specifically. So people will talk about bioidentical hormones and, you know, there's a big push to make things as natural as possible, but really bioidentical hormones are identical in compound in, in formulation to the hormones that you can get at a pharmacy. So, uh, but the ones at the pharmacy are regulated in terms of dosing. They have to be. So, you know, I mean, everybody's different and I, I don't want to knock uh, any one form, but uh, what I say to my patients is, is my comfort level as a female would be to take one that is regulated by Health Canada. That's my comfort level. And that's my comfort level in prescribing as well. I love that. Um, there the new thing that's out and about in uh, right now is pelvic floor health. Now you and I have kids that are older. Um, well, yours are a little bit younger, but I mean, when I had babies, there was not like no, nobody talked about pelvic floor um, recovery after having babies. What do you think about this coming into the world now for new moms? So what I say is that everybody should have pelvic floor physio, everybody. Uh, and that's a huge plug for the pelvic floor physios. Cause I think they do a lot of really, really great work. Um, to be honest with you, every single one of us as individuals should probably have a stronger pelvic floor. And most of us don't know how to do a Kegel exercise properly. So I'll do a test with my patients in the office and I'll say, do a Kegel. And the vast majority of patients cannot do a really strong Kegel. A few people are very good at trying to do it, but it's really that biofeedback of getting somebody to teach you how to do an exercise that's right for you. And pelvic floor, the musculature in the pelvic floor is, is it's super complex. So what might be a weak pelvic floor muscle for me may not be a weak pelvic floor muscle for you or for, you know, another female. So figuring out which muscles for you may have been damaged by carrying a pregnancy, not even pushing a baby out. I mean, even just as you know, if you have a C-section, your pelvic floor is still damaged by holding a pregnancy. 
And as the menopausal transition happens, we tend to lose strength in the pelvic floor. So what I would suggest to every female is honestly get in with a good pelvic floor physio, get them to teach you how to do some really good Kegel exercises and really good pelvic floor physio, and then find a time when you can do it. Like I'm famous for saying in my office, don't drive beside me on my way to work in the morning because that's when I do my Kegels is on my drive into work every single morning, right? And it's an easy time that I have for me, but I'll make faces and kind of, you know, try to figure out what I'm trying to do as I'm doing my pelvic floor exercises on my drive into work. So find a time that's consistent for you and do it every single day. Cause it's like going to the gym, right? None of us are built like Arnold Schwarzenegger, just out of the box. You have to work at it to look like Arnie, right? So we all want Arnie's pelvic floor. So you got to work on it every single day. You got to be doing some really good Kegel exercises or really good pelvic floor muscle exercises, and you have to keep it up. And that's, that's going to be the key as well. Going into menopausal transition for anybody is make sure that, you know, that you're continuing to do those Kegels because those muscles will atrophy over time. And, and that's just, a, that's just the nature of the beast. Um, how much of our every, how much of the things that we can, that we do, that we can do as a general pop every day inhibit um, or help us age gracefully? Um, like just in the basics, what do you, what, what percentage do you put that under? Uh, you know, honestly, but it's the same things any doctors will tell you, right. Uh, you know, eat well, try to limit the vices in life, right. You know, limit your alcohol intake, try not to smoke, you know, no recreational drugs, get a good amount of sleep every single day and exercise, right. We know that as menopausal, uh, you know, transition comes as, as we get older, it is more important to, uh, do weight bearing exercises, for example, because that's going to help to build your bone density. Bones will get more brittle with time, right. If you look back to evolution, we were really only designed to live a certain number of years, right? And healthcare has made it such that we're living far beyond when nature designed us to live, right? So, you know, bones fall apart, hearts fall apart, you know, everything falls apart pelvic organs fall apart, you know, lots of different things are falling apart as we get older. And the best thing that you can do is just maintain a healthy lifestyle as much as possible to try to improve your health all the way through. Yeah, I agree. Well, I, we're, I'm talking to the, I'm talking to the converted because I see you at the gym and you work out, um, your workouts are, uh, like impressive to say the least. Um, I certainly appreciate you getting up at that, uh, that dawn of 5am to get to your workouts before your day starts. Uh, two more questions you do before we started the podcast, you said you could deliver up to 10 babies a day. I mean, that's incredible, uh, bringing life into the world every, you know, 10, 10 different moments of a day. I mean, you said that's the high average, um, but the, it, it it's gotta be like, it's gotta be just it, so rewarding. I just can't imagine. I can't imagine doing it once, never mind as many times as you, as you get the chance to. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And it's actually one of the biggest reasons that I picked to do so much obstetrics in my practice was because for me, I love happy medicine, right? And I'm generally a pretty happy person and that's my personality. And I love being able to follow patients through different pregnancies, right? I love when they come back to my office and they know my girls and I get hugs and I see them at Safeway and Save On Foods. And, you know, and that's, that's really cool to me to, you know, be a part of somebody's life and to really have them say, you know, oh, I remember you, you really helped me and you made a difference in my life. And it was at a really impactful point in my life. So um, yeah, I mean, that's one of the reasons I do my job. 
I love that. And then the last one, um, just kind of from a, a bigger, broader perspective of healthcare. So um, there's, there's a lot of uh, facets of healthcare that are, um, I guess, just have some gaps in trying to get care for people for whatever, for surgeries or whatever. What is um, OB like? Is Are, are, you, are we in a, a good place where we have enough? Are you guys short of OBs? I think the world is short of healthcare in general. So in I would like to say that there is a solution, um, but there's so many points in the system right now that could use so much help. Um, COVID honestly really decimated the healthcare, um, the healthcare in general. So our nurses are short, they're tired, they're burnt out. Uh, we as physicians are burnt out and tired. Um, you know, virtual care has been great in a lot of respects, but in a lot of respects, it's also very um, challenging. Um, and it's, you know, I wish that there was an easy solution. Are there enough of us? No. Um, are there enough of anybody? No. <laughs> So I, I think it's, uh, yeah, like I said, I don't know if in a podcast of this amount of time, I have all the solutions to healthcare and fixing all the problems, but, um, you know, definitely that's one big push that um, I think all Canadian healthcare providers are talking to the government about is trying to say, we need to find a way to improve healthcare for every Canadian, right? Make sure that every Canadian has a good family doctor or access to free healthcare, make sure that um, you know, everybody has uh, equal access to to surgeries and to timing for surgeries. And um, yeah, but it's, uh, we're working on it. We're trying. Yeah. And, and as uh, I, I agree, I mean, we're um, as a maturing population, I, you know, I, I, I think I get a little bit more nervous about needing the healthcare system. I haven't up to this point, but knowing that as we age, things will come up and we'll need, we'll need people um, to help us navigate through um, just aging. And it makes me nervous that, uh, that we have some big gaps. So I'm not sure that I'm done that soapbox for myself. I, I, I've, I've always said that I'm, I'm, I'm put here to, to challenge something and this might be the hill that I might, uh, I might tackle. I haven't decided yet. I'm, I'm on the fence uh, because I do appreciate that there are lots of um, moving parts and um, just even to understand where the gaps are is, uh, is and, and how, how to fix it. Um, certainly it's not from coming from one mind, but it would be nice to know that we're moving in the right direction. And right now I'm feeling like we're, uh, we're a little bit stuck. So I'm hoping, uh, and I don't know, do you feel that same way as a, as a practitioner? Yeah. But I mean, like I said, I think we're working towards solutions and uh, both of, you know, their federal organization, as well as our provincial organization, we're really trying hard to make healthcare better. Right. I don't know if we're going to make it great in a short period of time, but you know, we're all working really, really hard to try to provide better care for everybody. Well, I appreciate you. Um, I really appreciate the opportunity to just talk a little bit, um, you know, about where we are um, from an aging perspective and as well as um, our healthcare system. I think it's important to keep the lines of communication open so that we as pop, general pop understand what we could be doing better for ourselves, which is going back to the basics, looking after some of those things that we can control. Um, and then looking to you as the pre as the expert into helping us navigate through some of those symptoms um, to make things a little less uncomfortable. But menopause doesn't have to be anything uh, 
Um, it doesn't have to be anything more than a, than a little blip in the system. And, and I'm, I'm trying to uh, take the stigma out that it, that it has to create and uh, conquer all of who we are. And, uh, and, and, and then we need to go into this with, uh, with some grace and some fire um, instead of letting it take and control us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, have a great afternoon and thank you again for your time. Happy to help out. Thanks very much for having me.